So again, uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, With what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's hear and receive by faith God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word. To the glory of God, to the glory of the Son of God, to the glory and, and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, today is the anniversary of uh, 66, I think, 66th uh, anniversary of Jim Elliot and uh, the various other young men who went with him into the uh, into to to see the Aachen Indians in the Ecuadorian rainforest, uh, and who were summarily killed after numerous careful attempts uh, to encounter these Indians, uh, little by little, more and more, giving them gifts in baskets held down from an airplane, and then eventually landing and then uh, camping on a sandbar. Uh, and then their lives being snuffed out by, with the arrows and spears of these primitive people. Uh, Jim Elliot, uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, has written, uh, is, is prolific as a writer and has written so many books. Uh, she has uh, never questioned the sacrifice of her husband uh, as he went uh, along with Nate Silver and uh, Nate, uh, Nate, Nate Saint. And a number of other young men, I think there were four or five of them, um, all young fathers, all young husbands, uh, and uh, as they sought to reach the world for Christ. And um, Elizabeth Elliot has considered and has written many times saying that her husband's sacrifice was worth it. She, in fact, returned herself after her husband was killed, uh, along with some other women, young wives of the men who were killed, and they witnessed to the Aachen Indians and saw a tremendous revival of men and women, boys and girls, coming to faith in Jesus Christ through um, through their witness. Um, God used the seed, truly uh, the, the seed of their blood, truly the, the, the blood of martyrs is the seed 
uh, are the seeds of the church. But 66 years ago, uh, Jim Elliott died on the beaches as he, along with other young men, uh, sought to share the gospel with the Aachen Indians. Uh, he is one who is credited as have, having said uh, he is uh, wise who surrenders what he cannot keep uh, for um, what he does not deserve. And I know I'm killing that quote, but, um, but, but as he counted his own life worthy to be surrendered for the cause of Jesus Christ, it's, it's fitting that on such a day as today we would hear and be reminded of the sacrifice of those men who thought that, who considered that their lives were not worth, uh, were not of such high value that they were unwilling to risk their own physical health for the sake of Christ. Uh, that's an example that informs us this morning, that, that encourages us in light of what we read in the text today. And there are harsh statements in this passage. Uh, there, are, there are difficult statements, we'll say, um, very hard, perhaps even difficult. When Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean by that? Are there contradictions here? We, we think of Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 44, where he says, I tell you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. If we're to love our enemies, how can we be commanded to be put into such a position that we actually abhor and hate without cause uh, our loved ones. And I don't believe that that is what Christ is calling for here, and we'll explain that as time goes on. But he goes on to say in Matthew 5, 30, 43 and 44, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Or how about Luke chapter 10, verse 27? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Or 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Or Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20, which have said, honor your father and your mother. In light of those passages, what are we to understand when Jesus here in this passage says, uh, calls for a, a form of hatred against mother, father, son, wife, husband, etc., etc. I, I think further, as we think about this passage, there's, there's no universal resumption of possessions commanded in Scripture such that one must dispossess oneself of all material possessions. In other words, sell the car, sell the house, sell the iPad, uh, get rid of the dog, sell the cat, empty the bank account, get rid of it all. Uh, that's not what's in view here in this passage. Peter actually had said to, Athen, uh, to, to Ananias when Ananias and Sapphira purportedly came with the money from the sale of, of their land. He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And so there's, 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 there's an understanding of possession there. There's an understanding of uh, ownership. And, of course, Jesus at many times in his gospel ministry, uh, there are many numerous accounts of uh, the rich and of the poor and of the rich being wise stewards of what they have, of encountering rich folk, of encountering those who were wealthy. 
Um, those who would follow him, you remember the rich young ruler who said to Jesus, I've done everything that your law contains. Now tell me what I must do to be saved. And Jesus said, sell all you have and follow me. So there are moments when Jesus looks upon the heart and sees an internalized love and embrace of possessions. And he calls those individuals, leave it all and follow me as as a confrontation against their embrace of what they have and what they own. I would put to you this morning that there is some hyperbole involved here, that there are statements that are intended uh, to call our immediate attention to what Jesus is saying and not to be taken literally to the extreme, in essence, that each of us says uh, after this morning's sermon and reading of the word, uh, walks out of our home, severs our relationships with all of our loved ones, abandons all of our possessions, and follows Jesus. Um, when, in fact, Jesus is calling us to more, uh, to greater clarity with regard to our possessions, with regard to our relationships, with regard to our possession of our life. Let me explain as we go along. There are three main negative principles concerning discipleship here in this passage. These are marks of those who cannot be disciples of Jesus. Now, that calls for our attention when we hear something like this. Well, <laughs> the Bible's talking about those who cannot be disciples of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Uh, who, who are those who are such persons? Well, there are three answers. There's one found in verse 26, another in verse 27, and another summarizing one in verse 33. If anyone firstly comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be, or hate his own life, his wife, husband, uh, daughter, son, etc. He cannot be my disciple. The second one, who does, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Thirdly, concluding summarizing statement verse 33, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his all his own possessions. Well, what do these three statements mean? Firstly, a disciple, let me state this slightly differently before Jesus is, uh, that Jesus has stated, but perhaps in a little bit more positive way rather than uh, in, 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 in clear opposition to what Jesus has said. And, and let me say it this way, a disciple of Jesus holds that Jesus is more important than any other person in their life. So as Jesus says that, that uh, what he intends and what I think that we are to understand from this passage is a disciple of Jesus holds that Jesus is more important than any other person in their life. Some of us are married. Some of us have children. Some of us have other loves, uh, attractions, uh, perhaps a girlfriend, boyfriend. Others of us are connected. Others of us perhaps even may, may be bound in, uh, with a fiancé relationship. Uh, other, others of us uh, simply have a longing for a wife or a husband that has not yet come. But even in, even in those uh, situations, there is a, a relationship or a longing for a relationship. And the question is asked of us, is Jesus more to me than them? Is Jesus holding, having, knowing, serving, following Jesus of greater importance to me, of greater significance in the course of my life than any of those relationships? Jesus is not commanding a, a contemptible and malicious abandonment of every meaningful relationship or spousal parent to child or relationship of love and meaning 
Uh, nor is this a command of exclusive love. In other words, that no, we can love no human person in addition to loving Jesus. Jesus loved the disciples. The disciples loved one another in every single epistle from Galatians to Ephesians, Colossians, even in Hebrews. There is a constant command to the body of Christ to love one another constantly. And, and these are, there is an assumption that loving one another within the body of Christ includes spouses loving their, uh, their spouse uh, and parents loving their children, children loving their parents. I think overwhelmingly in Scripture, there is a command to love those within the believing community. And those outside of the believing community to recognize that they stand in a position of opposition to the gospel you and I believe. And yet they are still under the economy of Christ's command to love our enemies, to do good to our fellow neighbors, to to love God and to love our neighbors. And that includes anyone and everyone within the context of the human race. Uh, a stick is not a human being. A tree is not a human being. Our culture, the 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 climate is not a human being. A fish is not a human being. But but every other human being is in fact our neighbor. And so uh, there is that command to love both God and our neighbors, and a constant command within the pages of Scripture to love one another within the body of Christ. So this is not a call to abandon every relationship of human uh, human love. Uh, nor is it a command uh, that contradicts Christ's command to love our neighbors or to love uh, one another within the body of Christ. So it is it is more than that. And I, and I think that we need to recognize and, and even to receive this statement with that kind of a more than qualification. It's an important way of understanding the meaning of Christ's words in light of other very clear and clearer statements within Scripture. Uh, We are commanded to love our enemies. We are commanded to love our spouses. We are commanded to love our children. We are commanded to love, honor, and uh, our mother and fathers. Um, And uh, so there is this um, continuing obligation before us to, to walk in love as God has loved us. So Jesus, as we have explained, is is calling us to make certain that we love him more than any other human, uh, more than any other being. Uh, and so that's the statement. I, I'm helped by J.C. Ryle here. I, I think his quote is very helpful within his New Testament commentary. He says, experience shows both in the church, at home, and in the mission field, that the greatest foes to a man's soul are sometimes those of his own house. It sometimes happens that the great hindrance in the way of an awkward conscience is the opposition of relatives and friends. Ungodly fathers cannot bear to see their sons taking up new views of religion. Worldly mothers are vexed to see their daughters unwilling to order, uh, to um, order, enter, excuse me, into the, the gaieties of the world. A collision of opinions takes place frequently as soon as grace enters into a family. And then comes the time when the true Christian must remember the spirit of our Lord's words in this passage. He must be willing to offend his family rather than to offend Christ. Some of you know exactly what this feels like when you've lost friends because you've committed your life to Jesus Christ. 
you've missed out on friendships and other relationships with other individuals, perhaps even uh, men or women you might have married, depending upon your your gender, uh, because you're a Christian, because you're a believer and you hold fast to that distinction that God has commanded that we not be unequally yoked. And so you've turned away from relationships with non-believing men or women. Because And there's a separation there. There's, in a sense, a dying unto self because you've lost out on that relationship due to the nature of their uh, lack of faith. Some of us have lost uh, family members who have been offended because we are believers and they really want nothing to do with us. I know some of us have experienced that, even being told, uh, I don't want to spend any time with you or, or I dislike you or I dislike this person or they've told a cousin or told an aunt or told a brother or a sister, I don't like this person because he's, he's a Christian, she's a Christian. Some of us have experienced that. Some of us have experienced a separation simply because of uh, we have continued in the faith and um, others around us have not. Uh, We used to have great friends with whom we would go out to the bar. Maybe we had great friends with whom we would participate and do all sorts of questionable things. Uh, Or perhaps we had uh, friends, dear friends, who who we loved and uh, we have felt a distance increase over time. Or perhaps some of us even have had a spouse that we have loved and treasured uh, and who has grown increasingly distant because we do not share the most fundamental commitment of faith, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that this should ever be fostered, not that this should ever be encouraged, for Paul says in the letters to the Corinthian church that if we have an unbelieving spouse, if they consent to live with us, we are to remain married. We are not to separate we are commanded to love, to to continue in relationship, and wives and husbands are continue uh, to continue to demonstrate their their own uh, fulfillment and obedience of Christ's commands within the context, the framework of marriage. But sometimes, nonetheless, if we have faith in Christ and we've committed our life to Christ, and we are seriously uh, following Jesus Christ, there will be and an inevitable separation. And some of us have felt that. In another way, I think we can sometimes place a higher value on various things that and, and make them of greater value in our life than Christ. Marital peace, marital bliss, our, our children's affection, our own personal comfort, security within the family framework. Sometimes we are unwilling to upset our children because we know they need the gospel. We know they need to hear the gospel. We know that we are stewards as uh, as parents of these children. We know that God has commanded us to speak in the highways and the byways as we rest, as we are out uh, working and or traveling, but to speak at all times of the laws of God, to speak of the necessity of a relationship with God, to speak continually of our children's need for Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes in order to avoid controversy, in order to avoid their being upset, we might say nothing. And this verse is precisely dealing with that very subject. Husbands, fathers, wives, children, mothers. Do you love Jesus more than anything? A disciple of Jesus holds that Jesus is more important 
than any person in their life. Any. In reality, just by way of reason, we can easily give an assent to that, but we struggle with it in our affections, in our heart. Because we have longing, we have feelings about our spouses, about about those we are in relationship with, but our, about our family members, about our mothers and fathers. And yet, Christ is the one who has given his life for us. God is the one who has loved us eternally before the foundations of the world. How can we not be willing to surrender even our relational peace for the sake of following Jesus Christ? Not that we would foster hatred, not that we would act maliciously and be in opposition to one another, but or invite a division, but rather that we would be faithful to the Lord and we would faithfully carry out what God has commanded us to do. Secondly, a disciple, as we would restate what Christ has said, uh, and hopefully in keeping in spirit with what Christ has commanded, a a disciple uh, embraces difficulty, possibly even suffering and persecution, in order to follow Jesus. A disciple embraces difficulty and possibly even suffering and persecution in order to follow Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus is not saying here that you and I must carry our own cross. Uh, in the sense that we must carry his cross. He's not saying that we must carry his cross in the sense of carrying our cross of suffering in order to atone for our own personal sins. No, he is saying we must take up our cross and follow him. He's not re- He's not talking about making payment for our sin on a cross and suffering in the same way that he did. People are not more than Christ and should not be more than Christ in our thinking, nor is suffering or difficulty encountered in our Christian journey of greater significance than uh, or more important than clinging to Jesus. Our deliverance from guilt from from difficulty is not a greater need. Our deliverance from strife in the course of our lives because of our following of Jesus is not of greater importance than following Jesus through every circumstance in every difficulty through every, through anything and every hindrance. Following Jesus is costly. And following Jesus and being a disciple to, uh, of Christ may involve separation, suffering, persecution, difficulty. We know that we have been commanded in Scripture to fill up the sufferings of Christ. We know that we have been told that, we, that tribulation is, is something we will endure, we will encounter in this life. We know that we have been told by our suffering Savior that we will we will suffer for his sake, that we will be persecuted for his sake. We have been told that we will mourn, that we will weep, that we will long after righteousness, that we will cry out for uh, endurance and, uh, and, and mercy in the midst of suffering. And yet Jesus in the great Beatitudes of Matthew 5 through chapters 5 through 7, has pronounced blessing upon those who mourn, blessing upon those who endure persecution for his name's sake. Following Jesus is costly. Again, J.C. Ryle helps us here. It costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian, to go to church, that is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice and to follow Christ and to believe in Christ 
and to confess Christ. That requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins. It will cost us our self-righteousness. It will cost us our ease and our worldliness. All, all must be given up. We must fight an enemy who comes against us with 20,000 followers. We must build a tower in troubled times. Our Lord Jesus would have us thoroughly understand this and count the cost. I believe it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said the call of discipleship, the call to Christ, is a call to come and die. It's not that we would literally embrace death and eventually take our own lives, but rather that following Jesus Christ involves a continual, a daily, a repeated dying unto ourselves a denial of ourselves, a denial of the things that our flesh cries out for, a denial of what Satan suggests we have every right to. It's a denial of what the world says, come, you're worth it. It's a denial of our earthly enjoyment and our earthly pleasure for the sake of pursuing Jesus. Thirdly, in that verse 34, there's a a disciple uh, of Jesus, <clears throat> or pardon me, verse 33, uh, a disciple of Jesus cares more about Jesus than his stuff. If I can say that in very pithy, normal, everyday uh, American language, uh, a disciple of Jesus uh, cares more about Jesus than his stuff or her stuff. Think about all the stuff you have. I happen to be in our living room and I'm looking at furniture and I can see our vehicles out of the side of the window. I can see the clothes that we have and, and wear. I, I see a, a treasured hutch in the corner. I see, I see uh, crocs that we've accumulated over the years, things we love, things we enjoy. I see Christmas presents. I, I see things that bring uh, joy to our heart and encourage us in the course of a day. Uh, I see the fragrance of wonderful candles we enjoy in our home. Do any of these things mean more to me, even the house itself? Do any of these things, does this house mean more to me than Jesus? Is it more important to me that I hold on to and preserve my home than to follow Jesus Christ? Jesus himself owned a cloak. And the ownership of personal belongings is not something that Jesus is repudiating, nor is he reviling, nor is he commanding we have no right to. In fact, he commands his disciples to go out and pursue uh, and, and to purchase a cloak, to purchase a sword for the day of trouble. Uh, these are things Christ commanded. So in light of those other statements, we understand that what he is saying here is that we must love Jesus we must desire Jesus. If we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we must love him more than our stuff. There are two examples that demonstrate here the necessity of thoughtful, considered, careful commitment to being a disciple of Jesus. And he illustrates within the passage in verses 34 and uh, or verses uh, um, 30, uh, beginning in verse 28 all the way down to uh, verse 32. Uh, he illustrates with two different illustrations. One is building a tower and laying its foundation. Maybe we've seen unfinished uh, places. I don't know if you have. I have. Uh, for years, we used to pass a uh, an apartment 
uh, block, uh, a large plot of land with very high-end apartment buildings. And there were foundations that had been dug in various states of uh, of being unfinished. There was one apartment that was mostly, I think the office was finished. There were a lot of dugout uh, foundations that were built um, and the cement was laid and they were ready to be framed. And there were a lot of other pits that had been dug and not yet filled in with cement foundations. And uh, for about 10 years, that, that apartment area sat or that area with all these apartments sat. And they, they, what had happened was there was a contractor that had begun the work, thought he had financing, went to the banks for additional financing, uh, over-obligated himself ultimately, did more work than he had the money to do, and he lost his uh, business entirely and wound up losing the entire development. Someone has come along subsequently and finished the entire work building uh, literally hundreds of apartments at this point, and the work has been done through proper financing. But the original owner, the original developer, did not have the money to finish what he had started. We've seen such undertakings, and we wonder about that. You know, how could one invest tremendous amounts of money like that, and endure, and and begin building, and do so much work, and lose it all because he had failed to plan? But we know what that looks like, and sometimes we ourselves have begun plans, have started a project, and not finished because of a lack of funds, or a lack of effort, or a lack of desire to finish. But in that example of building a tower and laying its foundation, one has to pre-plan, one has to calculate the cost, considering the ridicule of of, of thoughtless non-completion if others see that we we didn't think ahead of time about what it would cost for us to finish. There's a second example, a king preparing for battle. He's thoughtful, he's pre-planning, and, and of course it's necessary that he sits down and thinks and makes a measure of himself and says, I have 10,000 warriors and the individual coming against me according to my spies, according to my calculations, according to what I observe, have observed, according to the letter I've received, a threat, he has 20,000 warriors. And so the king carefully calculates and thinks about his own strengths, and whether or not he has the ability, given his position, his geography, uh, and uh, his resources, as to whether or not he can defeat the larger army. In other words, if you would undertake warfare or building, you need to think about whether or not you can finish what you started. I remember years ago as a little boy, I was being lectured by a friend's father. I think I had broken an outdoor toy that my friend had, and I had said I was sorry, but the father came out and felt he needed to give me a lecture about it. And so he, he told me, and I'll never forget what he said. Uh, he said, don't bite. He says, don't. What did he say? <laughs> I just said, I'll never forget. He said, um, he said something to the effect that I should not st- do something unless I was prepared to pay for the results of whatever occurred. And uh, I know I'll remember the statement later, but uh, but that's essentially what he said. There's a folly in starting something or doing something that we haven't calculated the costs of doing. Um, and that was the argument this man said to me or was making for me. It's the same thing with regard to the king or building of a tower. And, and it's the same thing with regard to Jesus. If we would follow Jesus... 
If we are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to calculate the cost. We need to think about the course of our life and what that will look like and what it will cost us to follow Jesus, what what difficulties we will encounter, what opposition we might endure, what suffering will inevitably come to us, and what it means to die unto ourselves if we come to Jesus and follow him. Well, why, why should we see these illustrations? Why would Jesus illustrate in this way? I think Jesus is, in this passage, calling for a calculated and careful warning for us about the difficulty of following Jesus and what it will cost us. He would not have us follow him lightly. There is a folly that we can observe in the lives of those who have lightly verbalized the following of Jesus, but then have abandoned the faith and have not ultimately followed Christ when opposition came. It's very much like the planting and the sowing of the seed when what's encountered is the harshness of the sun, the rockiness of the soil, the thorns that, in, that, 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 that prohibit growth of new seedlings that are formed in soil. Jesus would have us carefully, methodically, meditatively, uh, concernedly follow him, not in a light way, but that we would consider thinking carefully about what it means to follow Jesus. Now, in verse 34 and 35, there is a concluding summary there concerning tastelessness of salt. How salt, when it has lost its taste, when, in other words, it is spent, used, or lacks its contrast to non-salted areas or, or material around it, it is of no use. It simply blends into the soil. It's, it's no, it, it is of no essential use. It becomes, for all intents and purposes, nothing but sand or uh, the garbage left behind from soil, from salt that has lost its saltiness. Uh, again and again, Jesus brings salt and the necessity of salt having its, its sharpness, having its vitality, having its taste. Uh, in comparing that to a Christian and to a Christian's life and conduct. The concluding summary simply states that if we have no, if we are following Jesus, but there is no surrendering of ourselves and there is no setting aside of our possessions for him, if there is no willingness on our part to follow Jesus at the expense even of our relationships, we have lost our saltiness and perhaps we have no value. We say on the one hand that we love Christ and are following him, but the demonstration of our life is that we are not in any way following Jesus, but rather in contrast and in rejection ultimately of Christ, we are following our own appetites. So let me share with you some summaries this morning or some scenarios. Let's say your spouse threatens to leave you if, refused, if you refuse to fall, stop following Jesus. Would you consider that too great of a price? I've heard of a young woman who is a young college student who came to Christ and made a, a vibrant, delightful profession of faith in Jesus Christ when she was in college. She discovered the Lord and she professed her love for Christ. And her dad came to her. He's very, very wealthy. And he said to her, uh, daughter, I love you, but I don't have any use for Jesus Christ or for Christianity. I'll buy you a brand new house and set you up to start a new life if you will abandon this folly of following Jesus. And I, I heard in that faithful account of a pastor who cared for that young woman 
and who led that young woman to Christ. She abandoned the Lord, her profession of faith, took the house from her father. And to the day of this man's account of the story, anyway, uh, she had not returned to Jesus. It's a sobering thing, and it happens more often, I think, than we recognize. Uh, the world, uh, even our loved ones, will use various fulcrums to put pressure on us so that we will adjust our our commitment to Christ and perhaps embrace a little bit more of their worldly way of life and uh, call into sus- call into question whether or not we were following Jesus. How about this? You know you could make more money and lead a wealthier lifestyle by no longer attending church and worshiping the Lord, would you? Or this, your children ridicule you and refuse to come to church with you. With, with, will that stop you from following Jesus? And and faithfully sharing with them the gospel so that one day, in God's good timing, according to his merciful grace, he might use your continuing testimony of following Jesus Christ. Let's say you're threatened with death if you continue to follow Jesus, will you? If you believe in following Jesus, but your co-workers ridicule you and call you to come out to a party with them or come into the back room and in, into the break room and, and look at pornography with them. Scenarios, all of which I've, I've heard, I've encountered pastorally over the years. Let's say your friends at school tell you that they notice that you don't swear like them and that you can't be part of their program unless you do, will you? Or a young man or a woman who's very attractive tells you that they are not a Christian, never will be, but they're willing to come with you and to marry you. Will you permit the relationship to continue? Does Jesus mean more to us than our possessions? Do we love Jesus even more than our own lives? Do we love Jesus more than any other person? Do we love our God more than anything this world contains? There's a great motivation within Scripture itself for us as to whether or not we would follow Jesus. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. If God, my God, has surrendered his Son, has given his beloved Son, whom, over whom he proclaims repeatedly, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If God says that of his beloved son and says, this is my beloved son and him I give for your salvation. If God sent Jesus into the world in order to save enemies, for in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says. While we were yet sinners. In other words, before we loved God, before we had any interest in God, when we were still opposed to God, when we were still in a position of being the enemies of God, Jesus Christ, sent by the Father's goodwill, and through the love of God, came into this world to sacrifice himself as an atonement for sin. If God gave his only Son for me, How can I not, even at the expense of losing others or losing myself or losing my money and my stuff and my possessions, 
How can I not follow him and be willing if life circumstances and God's calling calls me to abandon all these things? I must follow Jesus. Jesus is more worthy than anything. Or Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Is that not a, a, a mere extension of the things that Jesus is saying here in John in Luke's Gospel chapter 14? Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. In other words, he's not saying, in this passage, he's not saying that we must never have any thought nor regard to whether or not we are going to eat or drink, get ourselves out of bed, brush our teeth, fix our hair. He's not saying that, nor is this passage saying that. Nor that we should love other human beings, especially those within the body of Christ, and we are commanded repeatedly to do, to love. Rather, he is saying that our hearts and our minds our, our most, our highest and greatest delight, our chief good is Jesus Christ. He goes on, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The Lord Jesus himself emptied himself as a bondservant, took, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men so that He could humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2 tells us. How can we do no less than to follow the example of our Savior? Some of us have done that. Even though our loved ones are not believers, we have come to Christ and we have said, even though I long for the companionship of of, of a spouse, and yet I don't have one who believes like I do. And even though I might have a spouse who doesn't believe, but I long that they would, and it would be so much easier if they would come with in faith, and yet they do not. And yet you have come to faith in Christ, and you are following Jesus. Are you not in some way clearly demonstrating exactly what Christ has commanded here in this passage? to leave everything, even to leave the world behind if we must, but to follow Jesus. That's the discipleship that he calls us to. That's what he commands us to do and to be. If we are a disciple of Christ, none of it will matter. We may weep, we may carry, we, we may have tears that will fall from our eyes as we experience that separation, that persecution, that feeling of emotional separation from from someone whom we have loved. And yet, as we have followed Christ, they themselves have separated themselves from us more and more. There is nothing that you will lose in this life that you will not gain infinitely more in Jesus Christ. May God help us to serve him and to be a disciple of Jesus. Though we are woefully deficient and will fail continually, God in his grace will carry us through and enable us day by day to set aside our love of all these things, not in such a way that we no longer love them, but rather that we love him more, more than anything. May God enable us to do so.
Let's pray.